0: Anyway, okay, we got a lot to cover. Matthew chapter seven today. I appreciate the opportunity to jump into the series, the chapel core on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I had the privilege of teaching the life of Christ every semester for 17 years, the life and teachings of Jesus. And of course, a big piece of that was uh, doing verse by verse study through the Sermon on the Mount. One thing I miss most about this job as a college president is that I don't get a chance to be in the classroom on a regular basis. But I think next fall that's going to change. I'm going to do uh, a first year experience course uh, here for our students next year. And so, but um, you got to re enroll as a freshman, I guess, to be in that class if you want to do it. Loved yesterday. I've been, in, I've been traveling a lot. Uh, raising money, building partnerships for the university, and I was gone in Houston the first couple of days of this week, um, preaching, and then also at the CMN conference, and missed the first three speakers, but was here yesterday to hear uh, the fabulous pre- uh, presentation and teaching from JP O'Connor, and uh, what a great, what a gift. And he was talking about his cookie dough that he just... And I leaned over and told uh, Dr. Tennyson that my cookie dough is Pringles right there, bro. And uh, this is the greatest invention, not just the content, but the delivery mechanism. Because I don't know about you, but I drink my Pringles. I do. I drink it right from the can. It's the greatest invention. Uh, this is I don't drink alcohol, never have. I've never had a shot glass, but this is the closest to a small Pringles shot glass that I will have compared to the big canister. But how many drink Pringles straight from the can? Know what I'm talking about. I can demonstrate it for you, uh, maybe, but might have to do that another time. But bro, it's the Pringles. But Alan, thank you for putting those on the front row for me. Please don't eat them. Keep them closed, if you will. All righty, the Sermon on the Mount. We've got 29 verses that uh, fall into chapter 7. And yesterday, Dr. Tennyson said that, hey, if you want to add the first portion, the first 12 verses to the teaching today, and I said, that's a tall task for just about 20 minutes to cover this. I used to speak for two hours at a time on in my coursework, but... I do want to bring you to a couple of things that I think just leap big time out of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and again, you can't understand the sermon. I didn't hear the first three days or the first uh, yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I may repeat a couple of things that was spoken at the beginning of this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive me if I do. But I've never uh, taught the Sermon on the Mount without contextualizing just the The events that led up to this teaching time of Jesus, I think it's very, very significant because we tend to think that new Christians cannot handle hard teachings. So we tend to play it soft with new believers. But when you look at the sequence here, uh, beginning in chapter 3, the emergence of John the Baptist's ministry, and of course Jesus uh, goes public, and he goes public with obedience, not teaching. He goes public with his water baptism in chapter uh, three and four, where he is then driven into the wilderness after he's baptized of John. And John is significant because here you see his adult fulfillment of his pre-born assignment. The crazy circumstances of John the Baptist: his, him and his, uh, John's mom and dad were barren for a long period of time, and his father was a priest. And you want a son if you're a priest to carry on the priesthood. And so finally, through. Supernatural but natural circumstances. It wasn't a divine conception. Mom and dad got together and got pregnant. She was old, but they did it the natural way. And she becomes pregnant with this child. And it's a shock to the people that she's pregnant at that stage of her life. And all of this stuff. And so Zachariah, when he's first informed by the angel, he questions how God could pull off that promise in his life. And he, he asked one too many questions. And he said, how can I be certain of these things? And the Lord put him on a timeout for nine months. You know the story, Zachariah. The Lord hits the mute button. Zachariah can't speak for nine months. Um, and I bet a lot of their uh, problems in their marriage went away. If one of the spouses couldn't speak for nine months, because almost every problem in our life is because of what came out of our mouth. So if you couldn't talk, you'd be surprised at how... Uncomplicated your life became. So, John, for those nine months, can't speak. Elizabeth is pregnant. She connects with her cousin Mary. And there's a six month gap between uh, John's uh, conception and the supernatural conception of. Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and Mary, and these, these cousins connect, and the, ba- the Bible says that John the Baptist leapt inside the womb of Elizabeth the minute that Jesus walked in the room as an, as an embryo, even pre-embryo stage. Mary had just been impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and it was probably microscopic. He could probably barely even see the cell cluster, but it was Jesus, and he walks in the room inside the womb of Mary, and the Bible says John the Baptist leapt because anytime Jesus comes in the room, we sing it. There should be a reaction. You may not have a lot of room to jump like John the Baptist at that point, but you still find room to dance even in the womb when Jesus comes in the room. And so John then is born, and they said, what will be of this kid? And the Lord had told the dad his name. Now you want to name your kid after yourself, and you want him to be a priest, but the Holy Spirit told, or the angel told Zachariah, his name will be called John. He'll be a prophet, not a priest. So that's like a disappointment to a dad. Nobody to take over the family lineage. And you would think when you're on correction from the Lord and you can't speak for nine months that, becoming, that you become bitter when you're on your time out. But the Bible says that Zachariah took the chalkboard and he says, because they were saying, what shall we name him? Shall we name him after dad? And Zachariah was the only one who knew the intel. He didn't have to go public with what the Lord showed him because he, he could be mad at God because he's been on time out for nine months. And he takes the chalkboard and he writes, his name shall be John. And that when he wrote that, his mouth opened up and he praised the Lord. He didn't go, I can't believe God did this to me for nine months First thing he did was worship the Lord. That's how you want to come out of correction—is with praise on your lips, not bitterness and being ticked off at everything and God. So now John had his pre-born assignment fulfilled. There, he's a prophet in the wilderness. Now he's baptizing Jesus. Powerful moment—the dove comes down. Jesus then is driven into the wilderness. Jesus knew that he had to couldn't preach what he couldn't practice what he was about to preach, so he was baptized, because he would be calling the world to repentance and baptism, and so then he then is in the wilderness, and he takes on Satan, and he defeats Satan, because Jesus also knew you have to defeat Satan privately before you defeat him publicly, and you have to defeat Satan personally before you defeat him professionally, and so he takes down the devil in the wilderness, and then he comes up out of the wilderness, angels minister to him, and he then begins to preach the kingdom of heaven. And he goes into demonstration before he goes into organization, um, and he demonstrates authority over disease and disorder and demons. And of course it draws a crowd. And so now, chapter four, there's, a, there's a, just a flurry of response to everybody getting their, their needs and being delivered. And suffering is being alleviated. You want to draw a crowd, man? Heal them all. That's what the scripture says. So Jesus has quite the crowd, quite the following, quite the launch. And now he's going to take those people slightly up a mountain. And he makes them change their location and exert some initial baby step effort to get into a teaching setting. And now he moves from deliverance to discipleship. And we cannot be afraid to move people from deliverance to discipleship. Jesus didn't wait three years to say something hard to a brand new Christian. He began to teach them. But he begins, as you know, with the Beatitudes and these, the happyisms of Scripture, this internal condition that cannot be touched by external War and I, I saw again a picture of a lady in the Ukraine the other day, and she was dressed well. Her coat looked like she got it at Nordstrom's. She's a very sophisticated, well-dressed woman. She had a Louis Vuitton purse, but the Louis Vuitton purse in the Ukraine was stuffed full of canned goods, not you know makeup or whatever is in there. She had and she had a baby in her arms, and this person was fleeing the missiles. You you would be shocked at what we are capable of doing when our choices are taken from us. And so Jesus is not afraid to begin to speak the calling to the cross, but he does begin by offering them the beautiful aspirations of the inner life that materialism and attack and assault and woundedness and upbringing cannot touch the inner life. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. It's really a mindset. It's It's the interior culture of the Christ follower and he begins by offering them all of these beautiful, beautiful traits and qualities that they can store on the inside that Satan cannot touch outward in. And then he shifts from the Beatitudes and goes after the false teachings of the day which was the teachings of the scribes. In chapters five and six you really begin to see Jesus dealing with the conflicting uh, teachings that the people were under from the scribes you have heard that it was said repeatedly that phrase is used you have heard that it was said now these are mutations and heresies but they they're mutations so there's always a kernel of truthfulness in that mutation or heresy, they were taking things from the Old Testament, but over time they became corrupted, especially as it related to prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which would be the social justice arm of the church. These things became corrupted in practice when it came to your prayer life, your fasting life, and your almsgiving. You're, helping, you're giving to the poor specifically, not just your giving. And Jesus is dealing with how the scribes were teaching or had mutated the truth of the kingdom. And then chapter 7 arrives and it is this phenomenal five section passage dealing with you know ju- judging, judgmentalism, dealing with prayer and what we call the golden rule. It deals with two trees and two gates and two foundations. And Jesus is calling for the question. If it was a business meeting, chapter 7 is he calls for the question. And he said, we're going to reduce this down to two choices. And he gives several ways. He illustrates it really through the idea of a gate, the idea of wisdom and foolishness, the idea of foundation of rock and sand. And he gives us really no more wiggle room as the delivered person to become disciple. So he moved these people from their deliverance from blindness, demon possession, leprosy, and he moves them slightly up a hill. And I've been on that hill in Israel and uh, pretty sure it's where the Sermon on the Mount, even though Luke says it was, he, it was a level place, Sermon on the Plain. Most believe it was right there at that Sea of Galilee and and when he referred to the city set on a hill, there's this little village called Safad, which is up on this hill, that at nighttime would have been lit with fire, that Jesus would have pointed to that little city on a hill, and that we don't put uh, that light under um, uh, a blockade or shade. And so this really cool little space, this amphitheater kind of idea, but he moved him into a setting of discipleship, a setting of teaching. That's why you can do life all you want and just go at a full-on, to-and-fro, high-speed pace and do Christian stuff and run from worship experience and convention and conference and this and that. But at some point, you got to sit your butt down. And you have to receive teaching. And we got to stop the activity and all the competition of bodily movement, and we have to focus in on what Is the Lord teaching us? So Sermon on the Mount is that classroom. Didn't happen in 20 minutes. It happened over uh, hours and some believe a few days that it was kind of a, a festival of learning that took place. And so this teaching setting the main thing I want you to get is how quickly they went from deliverance to discipleship, how, how little space there was between these newly committed kingdom people that were attracted to the power of the kingdom, which alleviated their suffering, and the introduction of difficult sayings. Now, if Jesus could do that, we back off from that because, again, we are afraid of rejection. Rejection. So I just want to draw your attention to a few things in chapter 7. It's broken into basically five segments. I mentioned the judging of others. We're going to talk about that for a moment. Then it talks about, that's verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, and then verses 7 through 12 deal with prayer and the authenticity of prayer and also the golden rule, that famous line that, simplifies the dashboard of our faith. Then he introduces this closing, uh, not argument, but this closing proposition of two things. You got a wide gate, you have a narrow gate. You have a tree that is productive and a tree that is not. And you have two kinds of foundations, one that can be built upon and one that will jeopardize your life at the closest adversity or the nearest coming storm. And he uses these as a way to help us understand the simplicity of the ongoing delivered life as a life as a disciple. Let's read here real quickly. Put it on the screen if you can. Uh, Bible says, do not judge. One of the famous little pithy cultural lines, do not judge, so that you will not be judged. So it said, okay, so I'm not gonna judge. And if you, if you examine me, I will accuse you. If you examine me, I will judge you for judging me. And you shouldn't judge me. That's what I'm judging in you. I've never figured out that weird little cycle right there. Don't judge so that you will not be judged. I'll, I'll explain what this means in a second. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? The idea there is a moat. It's a tiny piece of straw, it's something that is legitimate, uh, that, takes, that irritates, blocks vision, creates tears, but it's small in a person's eye. Why do you judge that little piece of straw in your brother's eye, but do not take notice of the log or the beam, and this is a metaphor, there's no way you can put a beam in your eye, uh, but the idea here is clear. Um, But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, the log is in your own eye. Then it introduces this idea of the hypocrite. Man, I wish I had a whole session on this idea of the hypocrite. The hypocrite here, this word is critical in the teachings of Jesus. It's critical to New Testament teaching, the idea of the hypocrite. It does come from the idea of an actor. It does come really from the idea of what we would see on Broadway where someone lives rehearsed lines. And they present a mask or a, um, they present a, a characterization of something that is not them. So it's lines that they've learned, but it's not truly who they are. It's a false name. Now, I love theater. I love acting in the context where we all know that this is acting and it takes great gifts. But in a spiritual context where we play the part and we, we rehearse our Broadway lines in church and with Christians and we know how to pull that out in that moment, the scripture speaks vehemently against hypocrisy. Uh, you know, the science of hypocrisy is interesting because there's there's two ways you can be hypocritical. You can speak virtue and practice vice. Or you can practice vice and speak virtue. Very powerful study on the impact of hypocrisy. Um The highest impact of hypocrisy, if somebody hears you speak virtue, which means they hear you stand up and say, yeah, I don't don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. You speak virtue, and then they see you a week later doing drugs, practicing vice. That's the most gross form of hypocrisy when people check out, like you just said this, and now you're doing this. But the other way that you can do it is that you can can, um, reverse it. And you can can practice vice and then someone hears you two weeks later speaking virtue. But didn't I see you do that? But it has less impact because you could mentally say they might have had a transformation from doing drugs and now they're saying a month later don't do drugs. They could have had a transformative moment in their thinking. So it has less impact of hypocrisy, but it still leaves a great question of congruity in the person. You can also say on the other side that if you practice virtue, someone sees you not doing drugs and they hear you say don't do drugs, they go, yeah, that matches what I didn't see them doing. But the most powerful form of authenticity is to speak virtue and practice virtue. Where we declare our testimony and our truth and then someone sees us practice the truth. That is when people have the most confidence in us. But the hypocrite that dismantles people's, that creates the greatest distraction in people toward the kingdom is when we say this publicly and then we practice this privately and people see that discrepancy in our life. And they react strongly. And scripture in the book of Romans talks about that creating blasphemy People blaspheme the name of God because they hear you saying, don't commit adultery, then you commit adultery. So this idea of the hypocrite is very key. Okay, here we go. We're going to go about five minutes here. okay, And then we're going to go into prayer time. I'll let you guys get out of here for those who need to go. Um, next, next slide, if you will. He goes on to say, Ask and it shall be given to you, seek and you will find knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or what person is there among you when he asks his son for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a snake. He will he will not give him a snake, will he? So if you be despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you or, in the other passages parallel, give the Holy Spirit to us? So Jesus is explaining both the passion of the seeker and the nature of the one who gives. So it is to intensify our trust and the consistency of the seeker. To know that good things come from the one who loves us, the one to whom we are seeking, that he's going to give us something good. And the nature of the heavenly father as compared to the earthly father is given to us in the Sermon on the Mount. That only good comes from the one. Now, the good may come in the form of delay or correction. It may even come in the form of suffering at times to refine for the greater purpose or the bigger assignment on your life. But only good comes from the nature of the one who gives uh, on behalf of those who, who seek. Okay, let's go real quick. i got to get to this one portion. Um, 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 next slide, if you will. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and broad that leads to destruction, and there really is eternal misery locked up in this word in the New Testament. This word destruction doesn't mean a bad day. It, it, it has the deep association with eternal misery um, or hell. So this wide gate, this broad gate, leads to destruction. There are many who enter therein for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are a few who find it. I've often asked this theological question. I wonder if hell or heaven will be more populated. It's a great question to ask sometime. More people go to heaven or more people go to hell when it's all said and done. Jesus gives us a very provocative and piercing teaching about the two, the two gates when it comes to the decision. He says, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Jesus gives a very detailed picture of the future. And a very detailed picture of his holiness and a very detailed picture of his justice and a very detailed picture of kingdom behavior. Okay, I just want to share this. Brother Allen, this is just way too short, uh, but we will, we'll wrap up here and pick it up. I just want to say this about judgment for just a minute. Uh, judgment is all based on an inability to see accurately our world around us because of a lack of self-scrutiny. The whole kingdom is based on self-scrutiny and self-reformation. I don't mean the power of self to see, but I can see self because I'm leaning into the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to examine me. That's the x-ray I see. And I am not reforming myself or transforming myself, but I'm experiencing self-reformation because the Holy Spirit is transforming my life. I've tapped into the promise, into the power, but without that, I cannot see my world accurately. I'm going to constantly... Look for your motive instead of your heart. I'm going to try and pierce through and discern and categorize your motive without taking time to see your heart. I'm completely limited. When I operate with the beam in the eye trying to extract something small because it looks, it looks like it's the exact opposite. You got the beam, I got the speck. But in reality, he says you have the beam, they have the speck. And you have no ability to extract it accurately if you rely simply on our fallen mechanisms. When I'm a judgmental person, I'm always eager to find the fault in people. I lead with this relentless desire to confirm my suspicions about you. And then I engage in censorship and finality concerning you uh, with no sense of self-scrutiny. That is setting me up for this terrible place of hypocrisy in my life in which I declare things that are virtuous, but I practice things that are filled with vice in my life. And then the residue of that is that people are blocked from the kingdom. The end of the Sermon on the Mount is powerful. It says that Jesus, when he had finished speaking these things about this closing argument or this closing presentation on two things gates and trees and foundations. He simply says that when he finished speaking, the people were amazed. And it wasn't like, hey, that's cool. That was, that was dialed in, man. I'm glad I came. It literally means that, to have like a hammer hit the sensibilities, completely driving out everything that distracts or diminishes what was shared. And there's this complete total awareness that one with authority one who has complete control over their choices that's what authority is that's what liberty is i am in control of my choices jesus spoke with authority in a way that they had never heard from the lips of a scribe or a pharisee and then they committed many of them to discipleship not simply deliverance Most of our world will always come to the kingdom because of their need for deliverance. They need their suffering alleviated. They need their sorrows mitigated. They need their tears wiped. And Jesus is always there. He, remember, before he taught, he did minister. It was demonstration before the organization started being built. And Jesus knew that it would create this frenetic interest in the kingdom. But it's what he did next, I think, is what Where the church is failing, when we simply look at the Sermon on the Mount as a methodology for just a moment, our inability to call new Christians, newly interested people to the higher standards of the kingdom of God. Grace in many ways creates more liberty in some ways and less liberty because of love one to another. Don't be afraid as you disciple, encourage other believers who are strongly interested in Jesus, the kingdom of God. He's touched their heart to the teachings of Jesus that are hard, that are decisive, that are piercing, um, that really become one of two things, this or this. All righty. That's about all we can cover in a semester in 20 minutes. Let's stand together, friends. How many have enjoyed this week and uh, the things you've learned a little bit from the Sermon on the Mount? My goodness. Thank you, Jesus. So here's what's going to happen. I know sometimes, I've so appreciated um, Mother Tennyson. She'll be back for two days coming up here. I cannot wait. Uh, It'll be right near her 80th birthday, by the way. So we're going to, we got to throw her a birthday party when Mother Tennyson, maybe I'll get t-shirts with Mother Tennyson on the shirt. I'd wear that shirt. Um, Okay, here's, I want to transition to a time of prayer. Um, For those who can stay, uh, no shade at you if you can't. Uh, Sometimes I have to go catch a quick plane, not today. Uh, But we pray till 1230, which is about, it's 1147. Um. For those who can stay, if you can stay for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, pray with your floor, get in a circle with your brothers and sisters um, and pray one for another. That would be powerful. Pray with your teams just for a minute. And then we have some staff and faculty. They're going to come up here. If You guys would come right now. And if you are carrying a burden from home, something's going on in your life personally here on campus or something back home. I want you to come and find one of these men and women up here. Say, hey, would you pray for me? Uh, I just found out my mom was diagnosed with this or my sister with this. And I need, I, need, I need somebody to agree with me. If something in this week's teaching has stirred your heart, you don't want there to be two things. You want there to be five things to pick from. And the Lord just gave us two things. Two trees, two gates, two foundations. And I don't want to make a choice between two things. But you do. And you say, would you pray for me? I I just want to follow the teachings of Jesus and follow hard after the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Man, these altars are open. So Father, we love you today. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. We're so thankful, Jesus, for your favor and blessing, God, upon this university, God. Thank you, Jesus, for every man and woman in this room, Jesus. Lord, I pray as we just spend time in your presence, God, on this Friday, Heading into this weekend, Jesus. These just a few moments, Lord. More with you, Jesus. That, Lord, you would begin to deposit, Lord, treasure into our hearts. And, Lord, we love you today. We're, we're grateful that you took us into a setting up on that hillside to teach us things, Lord, that would change our life and change the world, God. Thank you for delivering us, God, from our pain and delivering us, God, from disease and disorder and demonic attack. But, Jesus, take me... All the way as a disciple, Jesus. As a follower of Christ. As someone who represents both the inward life and all of my outward behaviors, Jesus. Help them to align, God. Don't let me become corrupt like a scribe or a Pharisee, Jesus. Keep my heart pure, Lord. Father, help me to preach the virtue of the kingdom and then to practice the virtue of the kingdom, God. So I can keep the world around me undistracted and wide open, Lord to their own salvation in you, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you. These altars are open. Let's seek them for a few minutes in this room. And uh, God bless you guys. Have a phenomenal weekend. And uh, for those who got to go, but man, let's just make this into a prayer, a waiting hall on the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.